source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Good morning. The passage we'll be reading from the passages we'll be reading from this morning are found in Genesis chapter thirty nine, verses one through twenty one. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. If you are using one of the blue Bibles provided for you, Genesis chapter 39 is found on page 33. Genesis chapter 39, beginning at verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought um, brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love 
and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Now, turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Again, if you are using one of the blue Bibles, the verse is found on page 957. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Several weeks ago, I asked Darwin if I might have the opportunity to read the passage in 1 Corinthians 10.13 just once and to tell you what these words have meant to me. You've heard me speak before about how I was the son of an alcoholic and a schizophrenic mom, and I was raised in group homes across the state of Texas. Later, Mount Zion Bible Church inundated me with the gospel from the time of the Reformation, and I became a Christian. But it was the truths of this verse, 1 Corinthians 10.13, as expounded by J. Adams in his book, Competent to Counsel, which every Christian should have in their library, that made it possible for me to turn from sin to Christ. Jay made two points about this passage that then and now are largely responsible for any growth I have in sanctification. The first point he set made was that no temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. As Darwin has said earlier, many have used this passage to provide what might even be a false sense of comfort to those who struggle with habitual sin. It's okay, they say. We all sin. Adams wrote, God allows no Christian to plead that his case is special or unique. This had been my excuse for many years with regard to sin that I struggled. This sin is different. You don't understand. It's too strong. It's too deeply rooted. I can't change. Jay wrote, Christians can't say can't because God in this passage says they can. And when we say can't, we're calling God a liar. The second point that Jay wrote is that God is faithful. And the reason we can't say can't, Adams continued, is that temptations and tests are tailor-made to the individual. God is the tailor, which isn't to say God tempts, but that he sets the boundaries for us as sovereign God, just as he did when Satan was testing Job. Our ability to resist temptation is not based on our ability, but on God's. Adams used this passage to remind us that because temptation is common to man and God is faithful to deliver them, Christians can't say can't. Darwin has used this passage to remind us that just as surely as God delivers men from sin, he will also judge men for sin. And if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. How long will we as Christians continue to make excuses for our pet sins? How long will we call God a liar? How long will I? How long will you? Thank you, Jay, for being supremely compassionate. Thank you, Darwin. Thank you to the members and deacons of the elders of this church for caring enough about the gospel to start a prison ministry. Though they weren't directly instrumental in my conversion, I have no doubt that they will be in many others. If you're interested in becoming a part of the prison ministry, see Stephen Smith, its newly appointed chairman after church. And uh, just a real quick word, if you'd like to purchase any more of Jay's books, go to timelesstext.com. <laughs> Or if you're having trouble living the truth of God's word, as I so often do, the elders of our church and our very own biblical counselor, Jeremy Lelick, I'm sure would be happy to meet with you. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word.
Let's stand for the benediction. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your work in our lives to set us free from sin. We praise you, Lord, for your promises are great to us. And as Peter says, you've given us these great and precious promises that we may partake of the divine nature, that we may embrace you and fellowship with you, and Lord, that your life may be imparted to us, and that we may be transformed into your image. Oh, your precious promises, may we believe them, may we entrust ourselves to you always, Lord. Bless us to that end, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the, uh, the first roller coaster in America was, in a sense, by accident. It was a mine car. After this mine had closed in western Pennsylvania, they opened up the railway to people that wanted to ride, and so you could pay a nickel and go six miles an hour down the railway. That was the first uh, roller coaster, and mules would carry it back up the hill and ride down with the people <laughs> each time. That's what I'd love to do is to ride a <laughs> roller coaster with a mule. <clears throat> By 1929, that was the 1800s, by 1929, it had 1,500 roller coasters in America. And after the Depression and the war, it was down to 200 in 1960 until Disneyland. And then we know since then we've just had an explosion of roller coasters. Um, but, of course, always the problem has been safety. Like the first roller coaster in Paris was in 1804, but they had a problem. The wheels kept coming off the cars, and the roller coaster wouldn't stop when it got to the end of the line, which is not the best thing <clears throat> when you're doing a roller coaster. But safety has become a paramount concern in our day to such an extent that they say, these are the stats, 0.00002% of people are ever injured on a roller coaster pretty tiny. And then out of that portion, a tiny number of those ever even have to stay the night in the hospital. And of those who are injured, it's almost always because of horseplay and uh, negligence on the part of the one that was riding it. Almost never is it because of a malfunction. The reason is because, as Dan West, who's uh, the ride's maintenance manager for Paramount's King's Dominion Park in Doswell, Virginia. He says, we inspect every length of track, every car, every lap bar, every day. Four hours before anybody ever gets on there, they're out there inspecting. He says, each worker has the right to shut down a ride. They will not let that ride operate if it is not safe. They walk the tracks twice, once to check the left, uh, right side, once to check the left side. They look for loose, loose bolts, track spikes, cracked wood, any other problem that has occurred during the night. They inspect the lift chain, the braking mechanisms. They expect, expect the uh, cars for loose bolts, cracks, safety devices that need attention. Then they have... Uh, then they ride it. They let it go empty. Then they ride in it just to listen for anything that sounds different before anybody else gets on it. Then they have a more detailed inspection every month. And then every year, they disassemble every car and build them back 
and practically reassemble re, uh, uh, due to replacement parts on all of the uh, tracks. And they even do an x-ray and a magnetic, uh, the, uh, it's a magnetic uh, scanner to check for any kind of weakness in the metal. I mean, they are just working constantly. See how this fits into the Joseph story? <laughs> Roller coasters? <clears throat> well, the point that we made uh, a couple of weeks ago is that the way of escape, as we as talked about in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, is not something so shallow and simple as we might think for Joseph. Hey, the way of escape was the door. That was the way of escape. But the way of escape has to do with how did Joseph make that choice at that time? How did Joseph have the perspective that he had at that time? to realize what was right and what was wrong, what was important, what was not. Even though desire may have been great, even though her beauty may have been great, even though the opportunity was presenting itself, how did he keep his moral and spiritual head straight at that point? It's, it's maintaining that frame of mind that provides even the choice to escape, even the desire to escape. The way of escape is very involved. And the, just like with the rails here, for them to, you might say, bear the pressure of the cars in a given instance, they have to be maintained beforehand. They have to be ready and strong. We must maintain ourselves and our perspective in the Word of God so that we are able to deal with the many things that come at us. We have to maintain our hearts so that we can bear up under temptation. Proverbs 4.23 is a familiar passage. Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Keep your heart with all diligence, because everything in your life is going to flow from where your heart is, what its passions are, what its desires are, what its perspective is. Heart means the center of yourself. So depending on how clearly I'm thinking and how clearly I'm feeling and how clearly I'm believing, will I act in a given instance? And so the way of escape, he provides a way of escape, but that doesn't mean that uh, you can totally ignore God and his word and then suddenly in the midst of temptation, you can find the way of escape. And it's not as though Jesus, for instance, in Matthew 4, when it describes his resisting Satan, that it was just as simple of a thing of, oh, wait, wait, I got a verse I can quote, pow, tempts him again. I got another verse I can quote, pow, I got another third verse I can quote. Glad he didn't tempt me anymore, I only got three verses, you know, that kind of thing, like a verse is some magic thing that sends Satan away. That's not to demean. In fact, we're going to talk about the Word of God and the critical place it plays in our lives in this regard. But it was because Jesus had maintained his heart in regard to the Word of God. It's because the Word of God meant so much to Jesus at that point. It so filled his life and his thinking and, and governed his desires, his whole perspective. It's because he was living out that Word and the Word just flowed forth from him. And so, maintaining a heart is critical. And we see that in Joseph's life, he obviously had maintained his heart. The first thing we saw, you might say, in a sense, from if we 
cast our cast it in the light of this illustration, the first scheduled maintenance is steer clear of self-pity. We dealt with that a couple of weeks ago. Steer clear of self-pity. He so easily could have felt abandoned by God when he was abandoned by his own family, abandoned by his brothers and sold into slavery, almost killed if it hadn't been for Reuben and and Judah. And so he he sensed the hatred and how, how much they wanted to be rid of him, and, and he could have fallen into self-pity. He could have had such a terrible attitude in Potiphar's house that when an opportunity came along, he's going to grab for the gusto because he had nothing else to live for anymore. And then when he did the right thing with Potiphar's wife, he was thrown into prison. And at that point, you'd think, huh, this is really great. I'm faithful to God. I sold into into slavery. I'm faithful to God. I go to prison. So if I'm faithful to God, I guess I'll get killed next. It's a great life. But he was not given to self-pity. He continued to trust in God. He continued to see every circumstance as the opportunity in which he should faithfully do the right thing and entrust himself to to him. He was so much like his Savior to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter describes Christ and how he didn't retaliate on the cross. We're all familiar with his words, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, And he was so gracious to his own mother to call John to take care of her. And then he had mercy on the thief next to him. Here he is suffering beyond our imagination and love continued to pour out of his life. He continued to give himself to others and to entrust himself to the Father. It says in 1 Peter 2, 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Here's the key. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Why did he act in love? Because he trusted in the Father. It's the same as Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 13, what does love do? It endures and bears up. Why? Because it believes and it hopes in God. Because it trusts in God and it hopes for God's outcome. Love just continues to pour itself out. But once that trust is broken, once we don't believe in the goodness of God, once we believe He's abandoned us, He's turned against me, love is going to be out the door. Because we don't see ourselves as other people's servants. We see that we've been wrong and we need somebody to do something for us. And if they don't, well, you've probably never experienced that. Um, 1 Peter 4.19, when Peter is now speaking to uh his readers on the same issue as they are engaged in such terrible suffering. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There it is. Trust your soul to a faithful creator. He's faithful. He's not unfaithful to you. He's doing you good. It may not look at your suffering, but he is faithful to you. Entrust yourself to him. Continue to do good. That's what Joseph did. Joseph was such a model of Christ, such a preview of Christ to come. And so, one way of escape, one schedule maintenance for your heart and my heart is to guard our hearts from the unbelief that leads to despair and self-pity. The unbelief that leads to despair and self-pity. 
We lose hope then in the promise of God. We fail to expect Him to do us good as we continue to give ourselves to His will. We don't believe He's going to do us good. And so even in suffering, faith sees the gracious hand of God acting. And one way to look at it is faith, uh, faith views all providence through the cross. It's as though we're given this cross window by which we can see all things. We talked about this in our Sunday school class. The very familiar verse, you've heard us talk about it so many times, you'll hear us talk about it from now on, because it's, it's Paul's basic logic of life. If he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, Romans eight thirty two. how will he not with him freely give us all things? So you see all things in the light of what? The act of Jesus suffering on the cross for me. That defines God's love, and so it defines the meaning of every event in my life. It comes from that same love for me. No different. So we see all of reality through a cross window, so to speak. And think of it. We have so much more revelation than Joseph had. He didn't have a cross window. He didn't have the cross that revelation of Jesus Christ on the cross, still he trusted his Father. Still he trusted God. And he didn't have the Holy Spirit poured out into his life like we have since the coming of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit from the right hand of the Father. And so I say to you, if Joseph, surely we, by his grace, can live out that kind of faith as we look to His accomplishment in Christ and we experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And just one more word along those lines, and then it will be time for benediction, won't it? Um, But uh, this applies not just in suffering, but so much so, and this will relate to some things I'll say a little bit later, but so much so in relational difficulty of of whatever kind. In, In other words, except for in in relational problems and struggles, so often we give ourselves to despair and without knowing it, we start to avoid or pull away from relationship. Why? Because we're not believing in God's goodness in terms of that relationship. Just example, in, in marriage, except for extreme conditions, we know there's adultery, abuse, abandonment, these serious situations. But apart from that, let's just say the normal everyday struggles of marriage. Um, it's, it's so easy for us to forget that the promise of God for our personal happiness lies in giving ourselves away to that person. It lies nowhere else but in giving myself away to that person, relentlessly, consistently, more and more, exploring more and more, how might I love her? How might I love him? But in despair and frustration, in unbelief, we succumb to neglect, to emotional withdrawal, refusal to communicate, Immersion into entertainment or hobbies or other relationships as an escape. We succumb to bitterness, hardness of heart, getting even, 
adulterous daydream. All of that is the same as bearing up under suffering, but here's relational difficulty. We bail out. We bail out instead of believing. Hard as it may be, as devastating and difficult as it may be, it is in giving myself away. And not only in marriage, but other relational difficulties, other conflicts. When you just want to avoid that person, you think, got to talk to him as hard as it is. I've got to talk to them. Because joy lies on the other side of that restoration. And nowhere else, nowhere else, believing his promise and maintaining a heart that is not given to self-pity, not given uh, to despair in regard to even relationships. So, that's one of the scheduled maintenances. A second scheduled maintenance that you see here And we'll just begin with it. But Joseph had a tremendous sense of the evil of sin, the destructive nature of sin, the corruption and ugliness of sin. And so the simple thing, to put it so that you can remember, is number two is simply hate sin. (laughs) Okay? Hate sin. Now, the way Owen, John Owen, and other Puritans have put it, uh, maintain, one phrase is, maintain a hatred of sin. Another phrase is, maintain a sense of the guilt and danger of sin, or maintain a sense of the corruption of sin. We lose a sense of just how corrupt and ugly and destructive and ultimately dangerous sin is. And therefore, we treat it lightly. We treat it as a trifle. We don't treat it as the serious thing it is. We should have a strong allergy to sin. I mean, a sensitive allergy to sin. Some of you know about my allergy. I think I've talked about it. Brazil nuts, of all things. I read on the internet recently that that's a fairly common thing in England, apparently. Brazil nuts, of all things. There's some kind of protein I've read that particularly is bothersome in Brazil nuts to certain people. Uh, I discovered it the first time, and my family did, when we were at a drive-in, just watching the movie, you know, dark, something's going on, and then suddenly in the back seat they hear, I'm wheezing. I mean, I can't breathe. And they, dad's a doctor, so they get the wrapper out and they look and say, they spotted it the first time. They think, you know, I don't know if he's ever had Brazil nuts. So go to the clinic from the drive-in, get my shot. Suddenly I'm able to breathe. So there have been several instances, you know, like one time at a church gathering, eating a cookie and halfway through the cookie realizing Brazil nuts. And I start swelling in here. It's the worst feeling. It's like a nightmare in the throat. You know, it's just... And then it hits my stomach. It starts hurting my stomach. And then it gets in my bloodstream and I can't breathe. It finally gets my lungs. One time we were... uh, I was preaching during uh, seminary at a church in York, Alabama, morning and evening. And that evening, they packed a little dinner for us. And driving home... I popped out the uh, fruitcake. I'm one of those weird people that likes fruitcake. So if you ever send it to me, I won't send it on. I'll, I'll eat it. But, um, <clears throat> and this one was just chock full of nuts. 
just chock full. I saw it. I thought, oh, this is going to be good because nuts are my favorite thing in the world. They were Brazil nuts. And so a few minutes later, we, we're pulling into the first hospital we come to, and, and there I am in the emergency room getting my shot. So my sensitivity is amazing. And I remember my friend uh, Randy Pope, he's a pastor in Atlanta, the biggest practical joker I've ever seen. And one time, Randy was standing in front of me. We were in college at this time. And uh, we were rooming together, and he said, uh, close your eyes and open your mouth. I said, Randy, I'd rather shoot myself in the head than do that. (laughs) And I mean it, too. He would do anything. He had a Brazil nut in his hand. I said, what were you thinking? I just wanted to see what would happen. Yeah, you got that. <laughs> One time I was handling a Brazil nut in the shell at a pastor's home in Yazoo City and put the, shell, the nut down. And a little bit later, I, you know, rubbed my eye. And my eye swells up. And then the other day, we were... I was eating in a restaurant in Memphis, and it was mixed nuts, but in the shell. I got something else. It was an odd nut, but I know it wasn't a Brazil nut. I got this nut in the shell, cracked it, opened it, touched my finger, and I got my, my eye started swelling. Just because that nut probably touched another Brazil nut in its shell. That's the kind of sensitivity we need towards sin. You know, where you smell it, you feel it, you see it, you hate it, it affects you. We feel the evil of it. And you get that with Joseph. He says this in verse 8, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you yourself, because you're his wife. How can I do this great wickedness? He's just overwhelmed with the disgusting nature of that sin to stab this man in the back and do this evil against him. But we know how easily, as any of us, We could be at that point, and it's like the illustration that one girl gave who was teaching our girls at RYM, a young lady. And you've heard it before, but men are waffles and women are pancakes. You know, the meaning of that is that a woman is connected in her inner being, you know. So this relates to that, relates to this, relates to that. So if you don't talk to your wife for three days, it's connected to kissing her, okay? But for a man, he's a waffle, you know? So he's so disconnected. If I do this one thing, it doesn't matter if it's related because it's not related to this other thing to me. Why not kiss me? Well, in that extreme way, we become waffles of the worst kind in regard to sin, Because we suddenly lose track in a given instance of everything around us. And so, a young man is becoming physical with a young woman at college or after. He's not thinking about 
she's going to marry somebody someday. I'm going to marry somebody someday. I don't want to have babies with her. I don't really want to marry her. This is contributing to the social breakdown of America. It's anti-family. It's anti-children. It's anti-God. It's destructive in every way, and it's going to create wounds and scars for the future for both of us. Not thinking about that. Just the waffle, one little part of the waffle, totally disconnected from the whole of life. And a married man, a married man can suddenly lose track. I have a woman. She has me. We have children. We have grandchildren or maybe already have grandchildren and we can affect the whole world by our relationship to each other as we manifest our devotion and our romance and, our, and the glory of our love. None of that is, is, has any meaning whatsoever when he pushes the button on the internet. It means nothing. We lose perspective of everything at that point. So, we'll come back to this, but that's the central thing that Satan does, is he keeps us from hating sin and even seeing sin, even recognizing sin. We become distorted. We become morally, spiritually insane. That's why Psalm 73 was read earlier, or, or we sung it earlier. As he became, he lost completely perspective of everything around him. Joseph had it clearly, didn't he? He saw it. He didn't see opportunity. He didn't see it's secret. Nobody will find out. This could go on for years. I got a sweet deal here. I'll get back at God and my brothers and all. No, he saw the evil of it by God's grace. And... I'll leave you with this passage. Next week, we're going to talk about some of the Psalms, uh, Psalm 119. It talks about how the Word enables us to hate every false way. But listen to this passage in 2 Timothy, and hopefully to give us all some encouragement in all of our personal failures. At the end of Timothy, Paul is talking to Timothy about people who have disagreed and stand against the gospel. And he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, even with these people, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. That's a whole lesson in itself, isn't it, and how we should deal with even those who disagree. But here's the part that I'd like to underscore. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and here's the New American and the NIV, I think a much better translation, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. To come to our senses. See? Moral clarity, moral sanity. But here's the encouraging thing, brothers and sisters. It happens when God grants repentance. There's nothing that can't be fixed by repentance. Really, in a sense. God grants repentance. And by His grace, we come to our senses. 
by His grace more and more as we as He continues to give us repentance. We live out that repentance. We live out that new life in Christ. And we stay sane. And there's a little bit of a feel of the the terrible nastiness of this condition. Because we, were, we had lost our senses, we were in the snare of the devil, we were held captive to do His will. Frightening. Frightening that when we most think we're spreading our wings, we're doing our thing, and nobody's going to tell us what to do, we're held captive to do His will. That one Jesus calls a murderer from the beginning and the liar. May God grant us repentance. Let us pray. O Lord, we see in this great example that your Holy Spirit has preserved for us, this man Joseph, in an early Old Testament context, with, as compared to what we know, so little revelation of God, And yet he knew you, he trusted you, he put himself into your hands, and he continued to do what was right. Oh, Lord, how quickly we lose sight of the ugliness and destructive nature of sin. How quickly we turn away from true love. Oh, Lord, how quickly we don't see it. We confess it to you and we thank you that you grant repentance. You grant a new mind, a change of mind, as that word means, a a revolution, a renovation of our thinking so that we have new perspective, a new view, new feelings even, new passions by your grace. Oh, Lord. May we have a new dependence on you day by day, a new sense of the critical part of maintaining ourselves by your word and prayer and discussion and fellowship with others and worship. If tracks on a roller coaster are so carefully maintained, Lord, how we should maintain our own souls, our own hearts from which flow the springs of life. And we thank you that as a part of your salvation, you make us careful. Oh, Lord, save us. May we do so because we've tasted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we can't stand before you, obviously, with any righteousness of our own. We're so weak. We stand only because of Jesus Christ, only because He takes away our sins, only because He bore our sins, and He gives us new life as we're united in Him. Oh, Lord Jesus, we trust in You and You alone, and we thank You for the new life that we can live united to You. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. 
Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of thy.